So we agree that we'll dispense with the news roundup in this podcast? Yeah, it really bogged us down. All right, well, let's get right into the unbogged version. This is This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion and analysis of the news in Northeast Ohio by the reporting and editing team at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, the editor at Cleveland.com, here with special projects manager and podcast co-host Laura Johnston. Glad you keep coming back, Laura. I didn't know I had a choice. <laughs> well, this time last year it was Thanksgiving, but that's later this year. Have we figured out yet if we're going to do an episode in the short week next week? I hope so, even if it's a short one where we discuss the best Hallmark holiday movies or Small Business Saturday. Uh, but, you know, the politicians around here, they always seem to reveal bad news right before a holiday, hoping no one will notice. So if we don't have a podcast, we won't get to dissect that. All right. Well, I'll talk about the politicians news, not so much the Hallmark movies, <laughs> but deal. We'll have an episode next week. First, though, we have this one. And the story I am most interested in, in discussing is the idea of putting a police headquarters on Opportunity Corridor. I don't recall anyone's vision for that expensive piece of highway being government buildings. Yeah, that'll be interesting to talk to about with Bob Higgs. But before we get to those discussions, I wanted to talk about our partnership with Lake Erie, Inc., which wrapped up this week after a 10-week program. Oh, good. We had 15 Cleveland teenagers who came to the newsroom every week to learn from our journalists and write their own pieces, which we edited and ultimately posted on Cleveland.com. I got to say, I was really impressed with some of these kids. A couple eighth graders wrote these impression, uh, impressive fiction pieces about dragons and zombie insurance. We had a junior who wrote a piece on girls on the high school football team, and it got shared everywhere, thousands of views. Well, and let's remember why we did this. This was all in honor of our departed colleague, Nikki, and uh, she was a big promoter of Lake Erie, Inc., and so the Newhouse Foundation provided a pretty big chunk of money so that we could have kids get uh, get into the writing spirit that Nikki cared so much about. Yeah, it was really nice for our newsroom to be able to do something in honor of Nikki, especially we just celebrated, well, m not celebrated, marked the one-year anniversary of her death. And this was a very um, tangible way to give back to the community and to remember her. And I think the kids really appreciated that. We got a lot of really good feedback from parents and kids. And it's a way that these young writers get to not only learn about journalism, but see their pieces out in the world. And Nikki was all about that, all about promoting art, the arts in Cleveland and young people. And I think she'd be really proud of what we've been able to do. Yeah, and I got to salute you. you. You clearly are somebody that's talked and thought a lot about writing. And as you put this together, I could see you thinking how much you would have liked something like this when you were that age. And so you put a lot of that into it. And we will be doing it again, right, in the spring semester? Yeah, we're going to be starting in January again. So we'll take about 18 kids. And I think we have a few coming back, but we definitely have open slots. So you can apply at Lake Erie, Inc. I'm not sure the the link's up yet, but it will be. And um, you'll be able to check out all of this work on our, our website on cleveland.com. Well, I hope somewhere, somehow, Nikki is looking upon us and smiling. It's time to talk some news. Let's get Courtney in here. I feel like I'm the lucky one who always gets to welcome Courtney Astolfi to the podcast. Hello, Courtney. Hello, hello. So we haven't talked in a long time about the long-running criminal investigation of Cuyahoga County government, but we had a noteworthy development this week involving the old MedMart, now known as the Global Center for Health Innovation. Courtney, explain the subpoena that asks for tax and travel records that has to do with bioenterprise. Yeah, so this bioenterprise was serving as the global center's like promoter, trying to bring in new tenants. They had, you know, a special agreement with, with 
the Global Center to serve this role. And in the subpoena we saw this week is asking for records about some bioenterprise employees. Travel and tax reimbursements. Yeah. Yeah. So so the subpoena is asking for records related to these employees of, of the building's promoter. Can you tell from the subpoena what crimes prosecutors suspect might have happened there? You know, some subpoenas, you don't really get a clear picture of what prosecutors are angling at. I'd say this subpoena does shed a lot of light on, on what they're probing here. The subpoena, you know, seems to be implying that perhaps bioenterprise employees were traveling or going to seminars, perhaps on the Global Center's dime. Um, we have yet to kind of see documents from the Global Center that would really shed more light on this. You know, when we first heard about this a couple of weeks back, we didn't have enough to report it, but we knew it was out there. I had a hard time seeing what the wrongdoing was that they were after. Usually we can conjecture all sorts of schemes, but on this we didn't see a clear one. The ask for the travel records, though, does make you wonder if they suspect skimming of some sort. But but I'm not even sure how that works, right? Because they were... Bioenterprise was bought, brought in. They got space free there. That was their deal. They got they got to take up space free, and then they were the leasing agent. They were supposed to bring in tenants, but were were they getting expenses paid as part of that? I don't recall that being part of the deal. Well, there there was a rent abatement agreement. I don't know if it was a hundred percent free. Bioenterprise said no. They did pay some kind of. Rent, oh, I did. But, I thought it was free. But um, yeah, we we don't have a clear picture of quite how this connects but it does seem to point in that general direction and it names specific people right? yeah and it's asking for the global center for reimbursement or expense records so there was ostensibly some kind of reimbursement there but i don't know the particulars of the the bio enterprise didn't work for for cuyahoga county even though it was armin budish who brought this thing together he thought he finally found the solution for this gigantic waste of a building but it's not the county didn't do it there's a there's an intermediary right there's a, a board that oversees this building yeah there's the Conven- convention facilities development corporation and they're the ones who act on behalf of the county here and they're the ones that struck the agreement with bio enterprise to come in and that's a public body they're like a quasi-public yeah so yeah, so if body. i were putting in expense records that they were paying that i was using for private gain i would be doing something corrupt and that that is what they seem to be looking at here yeah that that seems to be the case has bio enterprise weighed in at all on this i mean they've been well known for years i don't think they've had a speck of dirt on them in the past so have we heard anything from them yeah so they they did get back to us after we got the subpoena from the convention facilities corporation and you know bio enterprise said that they also received a subpoena um bio enterprise said that they're cooperating and they said that receiving the subpoenas had nothing to do with their decision um, to announce two days later that they were leaving the Global Center. Sure. Okay. So I remember when County Executive Armin Budish announced that BioEnterprise was moving in there. He thought he finally had a solution for that boondoggle, which was originally supposed to be a showroom for medical equipment. But you reported recently that that deal was over, like you just mentioned. So if the reason is not the subpoena, have you heard any more reason about why? Uh, you know, when I talked to Bio Enterprise a week or two ago when this news came out, they said they felt it was the right time. Um, they said that they had brought in new tenants. They had had 
you know, secured more tenants to occupy some of those spaces and were happy with the work they'd done there. So what about plug and play? Uh, that was another big bootish announcement, pretty close in proximity to the, to the bioenterprise announcement. Plug and play is a business incubator, a huge one internationally, and coming to Cleveland with its first ever health vertical was big news. Budding companies were supposed to set up shop temporarily here and get help from plug and play before trying to go bigger, hopefully some staying in Cleveland. We were supposed to see class after class of plug and play entrepreneurs go through that building, but we really have not. Yeah, and and kind of the anticlimactic part of that, I don't really know why that maybe fizzled or wasn't all that it was maybe pitch to be. Um, there have been several small subleasers come in that BioEnterprise helped facilitate it into the center. But again, it's, it's pretty empty in there on a day-to-day basis just compared to how much space. Yeah, and we talked a few weeks ago that this likely will become some adjunct to the convention center and add this end this sad, sad, lengthy chapter of failed county government planning. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Sticking with the county investigation, sort of, let's talk about the jail, which is practically next door to the, well, across the street from the MedMart. We've talked often about the inhumane conditions at the jail and guards who were charged with abusing inmates. We, re- we talked recently that crowding causing inhumane conditions there was getting better, and you just reported a big milestone on this, correct? Yes. So earlier this month, the jail was under capacity, the state rated capacity. I feel like we should do like a big round of applause. (laughs) You know, the county says that this is the first time since an expansion to the jail opened 20 years ago that the facility's been under capacity. And it's surely the lowest numbers we've seen since we started reporting on this jail stuff a a year ago, I, I think this week. We've given the county no end of of um, criticism for how they've dealt with the jail. So this is a big deal and they deserve a salute. The county took a long while to get going on this problem following the marshal service a year ago this week, uh, the report on how bad conditions were. But once they got to work over the summer, they did this fairly quickly. So how did that happen? Yeah, uh, you know, a big piece of it was bringing in chief of staff, Bill Mason. A big piece of it was bringing in the former jail director, Ken Kosovar. Um, Those guys know how our criminal justice system works here in Cuyahoga County. And the way the administrations described it is they knew where to go in and look to see which inmates could be moved quicker. You know, they worked with the judges to, um, you know, speed up inmates release and, and look at bond hearings in a more efficient way to maybe get folks being held there on lower level offenses get that process expedited and get them moving through the system. So how low can that number go? Do county officials have a target? Well, so not necessarily currently. I mean, they're going to keep working on jail reduction strategies, but where this really is going to come into play is what the future jail looks like and how big we build a future jail. And we're currently having those discussions as a county now. Um, They want to shoot perhaps um, for a smaller capacity jail in the future than what they have now. So that would indicate some long-term planning to reduce those numbers. Well, if we ever get bail reform done and all of the other justice reform we've talked about, they would not need to have a jail that big. Mm -hmm. I I would be surprised if they don't have some kind of target. I mean, they wanted to get below capacity, but 
but it's close to capacity, so it wouldn't take much to knock them back over. I wonder what, what they're really aiming for. The sheriff had something to do with this, and the sheriff is an interesting story on its own right now. Earlier this month, voters overwhelmingly approved a county charter with very specific requirements beyond the requirements of state law for sheriffs. Uh, you did a story this week that shows three of the four finalists for sheriff did not meet those requirements, including the one Budish wants to serve as sheriff. So let's break this down. First, what are the requirements in state law and what did county voters add to that? Yeah, so in state law, ORC says that, you know, the, the sheriff has to be a resident of the county where they serve for a year prior to taking office. And they also have to have um, an Ohio, you know, state peace officers training certificate. Pretty basic thing that all cops you see have. Um, and then the voters put in requirements earlier this month that requires future sheriffs to have a two or four year college degree and a couple other requirements. But but those aren't really necessary for this conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what were these finalists missing from that list? So one of the finalists is a longtime ATF agent. He didn't have his Ohio State certification because he's been enforcing federal laws for most okay. of his career. Um, another candidate doesn't live in the county, so she wouldn't meet that residency requirement. Sheriff Schilling didn't have the college degree requirement. Um, and then the fourth candidate has worked at the sheriff's department with Sheriff Schilling for as long as he has, and he met all, all the requirements here. Okay. So, but, so Budish wanted Schilling. So how can he nominate someone who's so lacking in credentials? How does he explain that? Well, you know, the county has come out and said that based on the language of the charter amendment that voters passed, there is this year period like a grace period the, right so that co they're saying that the college degree requirement wouldn't go into effect until the beginning of 2021 and that the charter amendment was constructed to allow for that i get it i mean i can see why buddhist wants them the two previous sheriffs were zeros Schilling has been instrumental in getting things turned around the question though is can he get a needed college degree in a year while doing all the hard work that is necessary as sheriff yeah, so I mean, he does have good law enforcement credentials. Everyone seems to be happy with him at, at the county building. He told council this week that he's going to be taking, you know, night classes if he has to and using perhaps vacation time to acquire this degree in the coming year. But I mean, that's a, a full time job. And it's more than a full time job. Right. Especially when everything's been going on in the jail for the last year. You think that would be a super demanding job, but the sheriff said he's got a good team of leaders around him that can handle whatever's needed if he's off taking vacation time to get this degree. So is this reminiscent at all of Sharon Sobel Jordan? Do you remember uh, Budish's chief of staff who spent a lot of time on the clock getting a degree in Columbus? So is the sheriff going to be absentee because he's cramming for that degree? I mean, it it does make you think of the Sharon Sobel Jordan thing just because that was such a big deal a couple of years back in the Buddhist administration. Um, but the sheriff, again, said he's going to be doing this on his own time. So you'd think it wouldn't be. They're obviously going to be very open about it. That, I mean, this is a very public knowledge at this point. Right, right. It's part of the conversation. So he'll be a college graduate. And here's a tortured segue for you playing off the graduate. <laughs> One word, plastics. 
I'm going to be sad if neither yeah, of you no. got that. I don't nope. get it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but specifically, Courtney, I'm talking about plastic bags. We've got a lot going on with them suddenly. First, the county is banning them. Single-use plastic has become the bane of our oceans and waterways, and the county council wants us all to do our part in saving the planet by curtailing their use. But, and it's a big but, state legislators from distant counties who overrule us on just about everything and are in the pocket of the plastic industry want to prohibit the kind of plastic bag ban that Cuyahoga County Council has adopted. This week we have two developments. The first is a survey of county residents on their thoughts. What did it find? Yeah, so folks went out to talk to residents at like grocery stores, events, and just kind of get an understanding of what they know of the bag ban and see if they're supportive. Uh, about 72% of people were in favor of the ban, the county said, and nearly half were strongly in favor of the ban, they said. But this is not a scientific survey, correct? Right. This is a shopper survey. They went out and, and they tried to pick a, a, they tried to talk to a st- statistically significant number of folks. They, they spoke to, you know, a lot of people, but it wasn't methodical i mean they went out to events and stores and and reached out to people proactively right okay but we're not done now we hear the city of cleveland leaders have lined up with the greater cleveland partnership to oppose the plastic bag ban or at least delay it for a year because cleveland is a charter city the city council could actually vote to not have the ordinance apply inside the city boundaries at least for a time yeah so there's been chatter of this delay um, and it sounds like, you know, there, there might be concerns from the city that, that this could, that this could drive, um, grocery stores out of the city and, and, but we haven't seen anything officially introduced yet. So if the city did delay it, it was not as a countywide ban. It would lack the power of the countywide ban. Right. Um, right. so it weakens the argument in any court proceeding. Yeah. I mean, that would be a huge blow to this effort. It, losing Cleveland that takes a lot of teeth yeah, out it, of it. It seems clear that the state will finally get the votes to 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 ban the bans that, that Cuyahoga County's done. If Cuyahoga County could get it instituted throughout the county before the state prohibition were to take effect, one, they would probably get a, a court to allow the ban to be in place while they fight it all out. It would also have some power, but if you wipe out a giant hole in the center of the county, it gives this ban much less credibility. If the if city of Cleveland goes through with what it's doing, it, it's basically taking a stand in favor of one-use plastic. What's remarkable about that is Kevin Kelly comes in here fairly frequently, and we always have bottled water for people when they come in. He never takes it because he refuses to use plastic bottled water for environmental purposes he brings in his own cups and he does all sorts of things he has some rule i think where he says he'll have like three a year and when he was in recently he hadn't had one so it's odd that as the leader of city council he would be doing something that impedes a ban on plastic bags when he clearly personally feels so strongly about this yeah i mean it seems a little counterintuitive you don't expect I wouldn't have expected this from Cleveland. I can just see the headline. Cleveland City Council takes stand to support plastic bags. So what's next? Cleveland City Council backs harmful algal blooms. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's wrap it up, Courtney, with something a bit less fiery. 
We talked last week about the county's clumsy introduction of a tax increase. It's for health and human services, and the county refused to give us an itemized list of how they'll spend the money. I think we're still lacking that list. This week, the county did something that gives us an idea on how they might try to justify their need for the extra dough. What was it? Yeah, so council's proposing spending um, more than $5.4 million over the next two years for programs aimed at our senior population, kids in county custody, and those suffering from mental illness are, are the big pieces of, of So the basically, plan. when they're talking about this possible tax increase, it's not about raising taxes to pay the ever-increasing bills. They actually want to expand the services they provide to the people of this county. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, so let me let me kind of expound on that. So some a lot of the money for the seniors would go towards an independent living program. That program's already up and running, but the county says they have wait lists and can't get all the services to all the seniors to help them stay in their homes. So that would just be rounding out an existing program. But then there's extra little things like making sure seniors get meals on holidays when county senior centers are closed. That would be new. Um, Another big piece of this would be uh, what's called kinship care uh, administered by the Division of Children and Family Services. And so so right now the county says they have decade high numbers of kids in county custody closing in on on 3,000. And instead of paying foster families hundreds of dollars a month, to care for these kids, they want to kind of transition to this kinship care program. There's already about a thousand kids participating, but they want to expand it and um, pay families to care for kids rather than, you know, dropping that out to foster families. What's ridiculous about this is everything you're saying they have not said. This becomes a decision for the taxpayer on whether they want to expand services why in hell didn't the county just say that when they introduced the tax? All through the county right now, people are very skeptical of this tax increase because of the ridiculously clumsy way they introduced it. Why not just say all this? Why not? I mean, it's clearly lined up. They're talking about it in budget. Why not come out and say, this is how we plan to spend this extra money? Yeah, I think maybe they got a little ahead of themselves. But I also think like with the kinship care, when when that was discussed in council, this week, there there was not a number attached to it. It was a to-be-determined ter- to amount of money. So maybe there hasn't been finalization on those numbers, and that's why we haven't seen those numbers. They could have been a little more transparent about it, I think. A but... lot more. <laughs> okay, Courtney, you're free. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, guys. In a moment, we'll talk about where the new police headquarters might go. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We have Bob Higgs and Mark Vosberg in our podcast booth. Hi, guys. Hi. All right, let's get to the story of the week. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson announced this week that he found a home for the new city police headquarters, Opportunity Corridor. This was a shocker for a bunch of reasons. First, let's set the stage. Remind people again, Bob, what the Opportunity Corridor is. It is a link that would connect I-490 at East 55th Street with the University Circle right now. That's not an easy connection to make. You have to go up on city streets. Carnegie Avenue gets very congested. This would create a boulevard that would have fewer lights than the city streets do uh, and presumably make it much easier for people to connect to uh, the circle from parts south and west. So the hope was that this would, you know, open up this forgotten land for rich development, correct? 
Jackson wants to put the police headquarters there. So where does he want to put it exactly and why? He he wants to put it at East 75th Street and on the corridor. Right now, there's the place they put it. There's no road there. Uh, Grand Avenue is nearby, but it's a dead-end side street. Um, And this is about a mile or so from the beginning of the corridor. It's um, just east of where Kinsman crosses through uh, coming down into the east side neighborhoods. Um, uh, Orlando Bakery Baking Company is mm. nearby. That's probably the most recognizable landmark. Okay. Uh, the, the thinking is they, they were looking for a new home for police station. They have been for quite some time. They thought they had a place at 1801 Superior, the, the plain dealer. Where we are right now. Where we are right now, or Cleveland.com's offices are. And that deal fell through. And then when they started looking around for other property downtown, they couldn't find a, a match between size of property and affordability. So they started expanding the search out. Uh, already they own the property they'd be building this mm. on. So that, that eases some of the cost. And then they started looking at the way this property connects and settled on building there. All right, let's step back a minute because I've been around since before the beginning of the conversation on this road way, way back too far back to even describe. And in every conversation I heard through the years, the idea was that if you build this very expensive road, private business will line up on both sides because it suddenly would be so convenient. That's why the state put money behind it. That's why the Greater Cleveland Partnership got behind it. It was the economic development. And never once in any of those conversations did I hear someone suggest that this would be a place to build government buildings. No, and I, I, this wasn't necessarily part of the original concept specifically, um, and it is expensive. It's $100 million a mile, essentially, to build this thing. Um, I think part of what's at work here, uh, besides the fact they need to find a home for police headquarters, um, it will mean at this end of the corridor, which is the, the most challenged neighborhoods, uh, along the corridor at this end. You're going to have a site that has 600 plus jobs plunked down there. And I think part of the thinking there is that they'll be able to get other ancillary businesses to line up down at that end. All right, but stop, stop. Because we, we built the Juvenile Justice Center out there with the same argument, and there's not any new business out there. I drive past there all the time. It's been out there for, what, 10 years? And there's nothing. It's like the Cleveland Clinic. There's no ancillary businesses that have popped around out there. I mean, this this strikes me as pretty desperate. It sounds like they're not getting the private interest yet. And so before this thing even opens, they're going with a cynical move of throwing in a government building. And when you talk about the 600 jobs, it's not 600 new jobs. No. They're taking those jobs out of downtown Cleveland, which everybody cares so deeply about, and, and shoving them out there. Right. They create a campus con concept out there um the uh the end up of the court depending on who you talk to there's been minimal changes there's been some new businesses on quincy by where the court is i think part of what could be at work here is that not only is the road not complete some of the things they're really banking on especially up at that end won't be done until about 2022 they're part of the development of this and it's one of the reasons this project got held up is the administration demanded 
all the infrastructure go in with it. Big part of that is conduit for fiber optic connections. Right. And up at the clinic end, none of that stuff is in yet, but the thinking is that's going to be important to bring in high-tech medical-related jobs, education-related jobs. Right now, the only thing you've had going up there is that IBM complex. It's at uh, Cedar and right. 105th Street. But uh, I think the hope is it'll move further down the street then. Oh, yeah, and they're so going to be one of next to be next to the uh, police station. Right, think yeah. about that. <laughs> if this is a successful endeavor and there is demand for the land, you're about to tie up 10 acres on very non-productive economic use right and 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 that's really the gamble i talked to two or three people and one of them even said uh this is compatible with the idea if it helps bring in businesses if this is an inviting place so that the public feels they can go into this building it's it's more of a community center feel as opposed to a bunker you'll probably see stuff pop up around it but <laughs> donut shops yeah well yeah diners uh but that's that's the gamble but if it makes the neighborhood feel safer it might also spark housing development uh there's a big question as to uh how much buy-in people get with rapid wait, transit? Wait, 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 wait. What housing development? Cops don't live in the city. They went to Columbus to get a law passed so they could specifically not live in the city. You're not. What housing are you going? Who wants to live next to a police station? Well, the the people I talk to with Greater Cleveland Partnership, with uh, a collaborative that Kent State has that focuses on urban growth, the idea was if the neighborhood as a whole starts to feel more safe you'll see redevelopment there because you've got a very poor neighborhood there that doesn't have much available housing. You have good but, RTA but, connections right there. But won't that happen naturally if this is an at-grade street that is very convenient? I, everybody who goes to work in University Circle, they're going to go there because right now they have to go up Carnegie with all its untimed lights, which is a nightmare every morning. This will be used. People will commute on it, which you would think then would attract naturally businesses why why do you have to put a police station there i think a big part of it was the availability of the land so but city council has to sign off on this right, right. um do you think they're going to i imagine the west side council people might not be crazy about this idea i think they'll sign off on it um the connections well the way the police department's structured the neighborhood work is all done through the districts so what we're talking about here is administrative offices, specialty investigation units, uh, things like that. Maybe the police academy, the firing range could be moved into there. Those aren't the things that you need to have close to the west side neighborhoods. But you can the connection between 490 and the west side makes it so that trans... Uh, driving from the west side to this place would be relatively simple. You're, you're you're going a long way to answer a question. You could just say, has city council any time recently rejected anything the mayor has proposed? No, that's, that's a valid right. point. So and really, that's honestly, the answer. They don't ever oppose what he proposes. I only heard one member raise concerns because he didn't like how far it was from downtown. I heard several members say, hey, this is a great idea. We ought to put more stuff like this down there. So I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of opposition out of this. All right. Before we leave this one, let me let me flip your lids with a disruptive thought. We can all argue whether or not putting this thing out there as a city police headquarters makes sense geographically. You, you can make the argument right. you just did. I could argue just as strongly against it. But what if 
in the distant future, all the governments in Cuyahoga County came together as one. We've done a whole lot of work. Pete Krause has done a lot of stories looking at how this has evolved in other places. If we had a countywide police force, wouldn't this location look different? I mean, it would almost be a brilliant move to put it there, easily accessible from everywhere in the county, not downtown, so it would not feel like it's the Cleveland police headquarters serving the whole county. Uh, it could easily be made to feel like a center of countywide law enforcement. I'm not saying that Jackson would, would think of this. He's not the kind of guy that looks to merge into one. But there are some real possibilities for the future if we ever got our act together and stopped being so balkanized and it would be it's not just easy access to those neighborhoods then you're talking about easy access from literally everywhere in Cuyahoga County right if you're coming in from the west or the south you've got freeway access to within two traffic lights of this site right if you're coming in from the northeast you come down MLK and you hit this corridor and it's a free run when this dawned on us last night it was wow this is brilliant could they be that brilliant or is it just an accident and it would actually bring new jobs to right, the neighborhood right. which right. it's just, just it may not be the intention but maybe we should do this because it could be a stepping stone to ending the silly way that um, that we're organized all right. Well, Bob, you, uh, speaking of law enforcement or public service, you had another story that turned my head of finding that the Cleveland Fire Department discriminates against African-Americans, Hispanics and women. It seems incredible to me that they have just three women on a staff of more than 700. I mean, that that fact just blew my mind. Not only are there just three, a couple of them are nearing retirement age, too. Uh, you had one retire recently and and some others will be going. So you may reduce that even further uh it, it's the, the department is essentially mostly white male almost all white male wow so who's making the allegation bob is a group called the vanguards that represents black and hispanic and minority it's an association uh that, i thought it was the federal government well they, the federal, the they, they made the complaint to the federal government federal government the eeoc investigated and after investigating, they, they sent correspondence to the city that says, we think there's probable cause here that you're violating Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. So what happens next if the city doesn't do something, um, make the test more fair or, or recruit more women and minorities? Can the EEOC, which is the Equal Opportunity Commission, um, something commission, right? <laughs> Equal Employment <laughs> Opportunity Commission. Okay. Uh, can they sue? Yes, they could sue. Um the letter, the letter of determination from the EEOC says we're going to be in touch with you because we have to sort this out. City's position is we're waiting for them to get with us, and then we'll try and figure it out. The things they're talking about are metrics in the test, mm. uh, narrow window for testing, not providing enough notice that if you don't have a contact at the Civil Service Commission, it makes it harder for you to line up to get the test. And last, uh, the, the period they looked at, a four-year period earlier this decade, the tests were given out at Tri-C West down in Parma. Not convenient if you live in, say, Central. Well, not Central. convenient to most people. Right. Uh, so what happens next then is presumably EEOC and Cleveland, which disputes this, will sit down and try and work some of this out. They could come to terms and settle it. Cleveland agrees to change the metrics in the test. One of the things you got points for was participating in an MLK event, completely unrelated to being 
a firefighter. But, but, but wait, the city says it disagrees with it, but they do acknowledge they have a problem hiring women. They just had a job fair specifically to get women and what, 50 showed up. So how do you, how do you dispute that you're discriminating against women while you're acknowledging yeah, we don't have any women? What they're going to argue is they're not acting in a discriminatory fashion, but that it is, it's a hard sell. I mean, nationally, this is a problem. Something like 6% of firefighters nationally are female. Uh, it's, it's a male-dominated field. Well, 6% would be a big increase in Yes, Cleveland. that would be a huge <laughs> increase here. There's 700-plus fire personnel. Um, but they can do things that might make it easier for women to score higher on tests. One of the things they got dinged on by the EEOC was they issued the same equipment to everybody. Now, if they issue me a set of boots to do the training in and they issue you the same set of boots. That would be hilarious. Yeah, you're going to be clomping around in these things that are size 13. I want to see Laura in those boots. I mean, I have pretty big feet. I wear a size 10, <laughs> so, but, but that would still be too big for me. All right, Mark, you're up. You work with Pete Cross this week on an intriguing story about municipal court. Pete basically made a proposal to some mayors on the east side to merge their courts and got a surprising reaction. Yes, um, the surprise was that they actually took Pete's suggestion and said they would consider it. Um, as we mentioned, Pete has been advocating um, for court reform for several years, and one of the reforms is to consolidate some or all of the 13 municipal courts in the county. Um, he noted uh, recently that Garfield Heights, uh, which has a municipal court, um, needs a new home. Uh, and the building, the court shares, the court shares the building with the police department and jail. Anyway, Pete thought that given the expense of building a new uh, court uh, could be avoided if they merged with neighboring Cleveland Municipal Court. Um, he called the mayor of Garfield Heights, uh, Vic Calava, and Vic said, good idea. I hadn't thought of it, but I'm, I'd like to consider it. Uh, Pete then called several of the mayors that uh, also use Garfield Heights Court, uh, Maple Heights and Newburgh Heights, and both those mayors agreed and said, yeah, good idea. We will consider it as we move forward. Okay, so what would be the benefit of this big one municipal court? Several. Uh, one, it would save some money, uh, but in terms of uh, justice reform, uh, every municipal court has different, um, well, have different bond uh, schedules. So uh, justice throughout the county is you get 13 outcomes depending on which court they're in. Um, the other thing is that Cleveland Municipal Court has access to pretrial services that the other, you know, municipal courts do not. Uh, that would be monitoring or um, uh, special dockets for people with drug addiction or mental illness. Okay. So how do we get there? I, and I p feel like part of Pete's story was about City View Center, too, and so where this could be located, kind of similar to our, our talking about the police headquarters. So what needs to happen, and what do the cities do to, to get there? Well, 
the mayor Garfield Heights was talking about moving all of it to the largely vacant City View Center on, on, the, uh, old on the old dump. Um, if uh, if they eliminated the court part of that um, and Garfield moved into the Cleveland Municipal Court, which mm-hmm. operates out of our Justice Center downtown. Which will at some point no longer be there. But part of the thinking there is that as they are planning for what they do with that, that they could expand their plans to include consolidating mm-hmm. municipal courts. Um, in the meantime, Garfield Heights is thinking that if they eliminated the need to build a new court, that they could probably keep the police department and jail in the existing building for a little longer. Um, Well, thanks, Mark and Bob. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Next up on This Week in the CLE, we'll be talking about the fifth anniversary of the police killing of Tamir Rice and some of the lessons we've learned from the case. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Wernowski. Hello. So Friday is a somber day for Cleveland. It's the fifth anniversary of the police shooting of Tamir Rice, who died early the following morning. Because this is arguably the worst day in Cleveland history, at Cleveland.com, we decided to go pretty deep in looking back at what happened and what we can learn from it. Over the past week, we've had stories nearly every day on Cleveland.com examining aspects of the case coverage, coverage that you coordinated. Before we get into the specific pieces, how about some thoughts from you? What's your takeaway after reconsidering this case as deeply as you have? Um, I think it's still pretty much a, a kind of a sore black eye on the city, you know, as, as much as the police department and the community have sort of tried to push past it. I still think a lot of the resentment and the lingering issues surrounding the shooting kind of resonate with, with people who live here. I mean, you can... Do you feel like we just stopped confronting it, that it's such a painful thing that in the end... We, we, we just put it in a corner and, and we didn't want to think. People have such strong feelings. It's very polarizing. The analysis you've been doing this past few months as this has been planned, we didn't do it really the past few years. I think it's, I think it's easy for people who are very critical of the coverage and, and you know who still have really strong, weird, and mostly inaccurate views of what happened that day. I think it's easy for them to ignore the systemic problems that led to that and that led to similar incidents to that around the country because they don't have to live in those communities. And and I think I think part of 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 a lot of the at least the criticism that we're getting is from people who never have to sort of experience, you know, a life like Tamir's or a life like his mother's. And so I just I think that it's easy to sort of quickly move on from things like this because it keeps happening and because we're, we keep being confronted with a different version of this same story in a different city almost every single day. You had an idea at the start of our planning for the coverage that was inspiring. You suggested we talk to people who were friends of Tamir back then to see how his killing affected their lives. But because Tamir had moved not too long before the shooting, his mom told us he didn't have a lot of close friends that we could we could reach out to. So you retooled your vision for the story and you sent reporters out to talk with people who were Tamir's age at the time of the shooting. You called them Generation Tamir. What did they tell us? Um, I mean, they told us that, you know, there is a that, that, that something like this sort of reshaped how their parents talked to them about how to deal with police you know i mean there's 
always been a massive mistrust of police in specific corners of black communities in the city and in a lot of American cities. But it took on an urgency when a police officer shoots and kills a 12 year old. And, 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 and it's such a, it's such a weird burden that's kind of specific to black communities where children are being forced to sort of approach police as if they were adults. And, and, you know, I mean, the, the story that we did about the guide that Samaria Rice developed with her, uh, w- you know, with the ACLU, you know, it, it while that seems like kind of a cool idea, it's also kind of a sad commentary that, you know, that that young black children are sort of forced to. Yeah, we'll, to, get, we'll get to that right, in a minute. Right. I mean, that was chilling. But another insightful piece you had was about the police unions. Our story examined how Steve Loomis, the police union president who said abhorrent things about Tamir and the shooting being justified, rode that story all the way to the White House and the fight against police reforms. Can you explain that one? Yeah, I mean, it it, this part of the story sort of, I think, took everybody by surprise because it happened kind of quickly. You know, it it. You know, the the local police union and Steve Loomis, who he's been a detective here for a long time and has always been kind of an outspoken defender of police as union heads tend to be. You know, he you know, he made a lot of statements and became kind of a pundit in conservative news circles defending, you know, the sort of pro police angle of the Tamirai shooting. And, you know, this was all happening kind of during the, the run up to the 2016 presidential election. And he sort of got co-opted in this very pro-police message that the Trump campaign that, you know, in, in what would eventually become the, the sort of message of the Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, Justice Department. And so they brought Loomis into the fold. He went to some events. He, you know, interacted with Trump. And, and then all of a sudden, our police union is endorsing its first ever presidential candidate very shortly before the national fraternal order of police is is endorsing trump as presidential candidate and and so and they continue to endorse him and and so you know it's it's it you know they latched on to a lot of this sort of uh white resentment of this idea that you know cops are there to protect us and all this stuff which they are but you know it it really was sort of driven by a false narrative that that the real victims of all of this were the police it, the narrative worked though trump's justice department hasn't done a single dissent consent decree to curb abusive policies and they've i mean as sessions left the justice department he essentially made it more difficult for the justice department to do that and and Barr, who is actually speaking here th- this week, has also made some very, I would say, dramatic statements about police power and how police have deserved the right to, you know, basically shoot first and ask questions later. So let's talk about the gazebo. Columnist Layla Tassi was on the podcast last week to talk about her essay that called on the city to embrace Tamir and his mom, Samaria Race by supporting his legacy and addressing racism in Cleveland. Layla used the gazebo where Tamir was shot as a symbol for how badly we've treated Samaria. And we had a story this week that examined the gazebo as that symbol. So what was the takeaway? Um, well, it's, it's 
you know, it's not here. You know, her, his mother, you know, told us uh, when she came in here and spoke to us that she, you know, when she saw it, it brought up bad memories and she wanted it out of the city, basically. And, and you know, the city was going to tear it down, but then she sort of realized it's something that might need to be preserved. So now it's sitting at, at an art exhibit over in Chicago for a little while. Um, when she talked to us, you know, she said she would like to bring it back to Cleveland because it is important. It is a... A, you know, it is a symbol of civil rights. It of, is the symbol. It is, it is for this city. I mean, we have, you know, I mean, for all of the 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 history of civil rights here and, and, the, and all of the black history in this city, whether it's Stokes, whether it's the race riots, you know, all of these things are important in this city's legacy and especially to the black community. And, and I think... You know, I feel like his mother feels a sense of, of service to that legacy of civil rights and where her son kind of fits into it. And and I think she believes it's important that that gazebo come back here. So she's currently searching for a home for it. And, you know, with the hopes that once her obligation to this art installation in Chicago is ended, that she can bring it back here. Yeah, you could argue that that will be the enduring symbol of this this divide we've had between police and African-American community of all the shootings and all the things that have happened. What, what more palpable symbol is there? One of the more touching things to come out of this is a, a pamphlet that you mentioned earlier designed by Samaria Rice and the ACLU to teach kids how to avoid conflict with police. It's called something like Tamir Safety Guide, but it's, it's using the, the death of this 12-year-old to try and teach other children how not to be in that situation. It, it, a little odd because it's putting the onus on the children to not get shot by, by police who are doing the wrong thing, but, but what, is, what makes this special? Well, I think what makes it special is how it is, it's bright, it's colorful, it's it's plain spoken and it's directed at children and it is you know i mean it is essentially saying you know if the cops approach you or aggressive with you the, here's what your rights are and you know i mean it's i i think i think for a lot of parents i mean this i think would be for you as a parent or me as a parent or any parent you know i mean it's sort of difficult to articulate you know just how much power police have over you and and how they have the ability to sort of violate your civil rights at a whim and so you know i think it's 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 both important to understand that but also kind of a sad commentary that you know that children have to be taught this and it's, i you know and it's i understand such a that, burden on well, these kids look you know i mean i think people are going to argue like yes you should respect police and and that's all well and good, but I mean, if police are acting poorly, it, it, who, they nobody just, deserves they just your respect. They don't get outright. the leniency so, that other kids are going to get. One of the things Samaria Rice said that I don't think we even contemplated back in the day is this is an open carry city, right? Yeah. State. So, so forget that the caller who dialed nine one one about Tamir said, "I think it's a kid with a toy gun." That did not get transmitted to the police. Mm-hmm. But for the police officers pulling up, thinking it's a man with a gun. A man with a gun is legal. There's nothing illegal about sitting there with a handgun. Yeah, think and, about the the girl from Kent State who walked around with a right. rifle on her back for so, a public publicity. So stunt. they pull up on a guy with a gun who would be legal, and within a split second, shoot and kill him. Right, and but again, I think as I was as I was saying earlier, I think you know it's. I mean, when I was a kid, it was perfectly normal to walk. I lived in a small town. I walked around with a BB gun with no orange tip and. 
you know, I vandalizing. Okay, okay. <laughs> but you know, TMI. But but you know, it, it what what I don't think we sort of understand, and and what I was trying to address earlier uh, before I got off track is that they're you know for young black children there's this expectation that they have to behave like adults because you know and and it's so evident in this case you know when you listen to what steve loomis said about him he looked like an adult he was he was big he was this and it's like well none of that matters you know if 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 it's the onus is on police to not do that. And, and so now we're sort of transferring that responsibility to these well, children. I, I do. Ho- obviously they are taught. The police have changed their way of, of interacting. They're supposed to be They're teaching, but I, I read the pamphlet. I learned stuff from the pamphlet. Um, so it was just one of the very terrific stories that you've done this week, Chris, this, this case is so hard to comp- contemplate, but the work your team did helped put a lot of it in perspective. Um, aside from Tamir, you were also editing regular crime this week. Um, and I want to talk about one more. We did not get that long anticipated opioid trial in Cleveland in October because the party settled, but now we have to look at one next October. So what is going on with that? Well, I, you know, we had a massive settlement here that avoided what was going to be a very long trial that probably would have inched into everybody's Christmas. And uh, I, but man, I was looking forward to it. Oh, it would have been, you know, I honestly, it, it would have been very fascinating. And I think, you know, I think there was, I, I, I think there was an opportunity for America really to learn a lot about the sort of seedy business of peddling legal drugs to people who probably didn't need them and and so we have a ma- we had a massive settlement but we also have a separate issue that these lawsuits uh, against these pharmacies are still set to go forward i i feel like this has been pushed out so far that you know that they're probably going to end up you think reaching, it'll settle i there will probably be a settlement i i feel like the the you know pushing this back almost a year is is giving them time to sort of figure out how to settle this you know i think you know the the although what isn't one of the pharmacies shown no willingness to do that i thought there was one that we we thought would go to the mat i mean they might but it's it, it, again they're they're you're you're seeing small you're seeing judgments sort of like pocket judgments in in like singular lawsuits taking place across the country and the and the awards are being are kind of massive i know there was a massive one in oklahoma that a a judge has scaled back a little bit in the last week but i think i think you know pollsters the judge in this case has a reputation of pushing for settlements very hard and and i think that that's probably where we'll end up here again all right thank you chris thank you so much so come come back again soon will do In a moment, we dissect how the Browns went so upside down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Sports manager Dave Campbell is here. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. We don't talk a lot of sports on this podcast, Dave, but what's happening with the Browns transcends sports. It transcends belief, frankly. We started this season with everyone, and I mean everyone, predicting the Browns would be great, win their division, and excite the city. They almost immediately went south, showing such a lack of discipline that they set a modern team record for penalties. Then last week, as they finally defeated the hated Steelers, one of their players yanked off the helmet of the Steelers quarterback and whacked him in the head with it. That brutal act was an international story, bringing scorn to Cleveland. What's going on with this team? 
Well, anybody who follows the Browns or has for years knows that the Browns have always been beaten by the Steelers. They've, they've always been bullied by the Steelers, and Browns fans have always wanted their team to be tougher and not get bullied. And that's what they saw the other night. And if you take the last 15 seconds out of that game, I think Browns fans would have been really happy oh, yeah. with the way that team played. Oh, yeah. But as Freddie Kitchen said after the game, Everything's been overshadowed by the Miles Garrett helmet swinging thing, and that's what that game is going to be remembered for. And some people would argue that's what this season might be remembered for when it's all done. But anyway, Freddie has been trying to get this team to kind of find that sweet spot in between being soft and being crazily aggressive. And it's been a it's been an experiment that they've been trying to figure out the whole way through this season. Freddie wants them to kind of find that. He felt like they did that except for the last 15 seconds. So it's going to be interesting to see how things go from here. That's a big except. It just It's sad how much Northeast Ohioans love this team. I don't personally get it, but Browns fandom runs deeper than any other Cleveland sport. And Clevelanders so desperately want success for this team. And now it's like the pariah of the NFL. So we, I think we deserve so much more as a city. And I don't know what you can do about it. it. Do you purge the front office again? Do you look for another quarterback? Yeah, it's you know the thing. One thing that um, kind of struck me last week was uh, Doug Maurice, our columnist, talked to Jim Rooney, who's part of the Rooney family that owns the Steelers. And what they were talking mm-hmm. about, you know, Jimmy and Dee Haslam used to be part owners of the Steelers before they bought the Browns. And what the Steelers are known for is patience and finding people that they believe in and trusting those people to carry out a plan. And, again, if you've been following the Browns it's, for years, you know that it's been one firing after another. Been, this is the next big thing. This new, is going to be the fix. A new GM. Yeah, yeah. The new fix. We're going to reinvent. We're going to do analytics. Then we're going to bring these people in. And I think if anything has happened with the Haslams the last few years, it's that they have finally realized we need to detach ourselves a little bit, find good people, and let them do their jobs. But, but, They're trying to instill the Steeler stop, way. Stop, like, stop, 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 though. That's what they want to do. This question's nagged at me all year. They had a coach in the second half of the season last year who'd done what no other coach had done. He won. They won and they won and everybody got excited. It felt like the Browns in the second half of last year finally had the formula. They had some talented players. They had a coach that knew what he was doing. But then in the offseason, they dump him and they bring in this rookie, Freddie Kitchens, which kind of flies in the face of what you just said about patience. Nothing has gone right under Kitchens. Why didn't they stick with what they had? Well, Greg Williams, number one, is not only if they kept him, would he be the head coach? He'd be the face of the franchise. He'd be the one doing media every day. Greg Williams was involved with the Bounty Gate in New Orleans. Greg Williams has a very odd relationship with a lot of his players. I, I, a lot of people don't like playing for him because he's... He's foul mouth. He's aggressive. He, you know, you've seen him on TV. Like that's just the way he is. And you can even see Miles Garrett came out at the beginning of the season and said, "I'm going to have a better year this year because Greg Williams would only let me use two or three pass moves, and I want to use all of them this year, including so, taking off the helmet of a quarterback and whacking him in the head." <laughs> no, that wasn't Not one of the ones. <laughs> but anyway, you know, Greg Williams when he was here, he's like, "I've been offered 47 head coaching jobs, and how many people offered him a head coaching job once the Browns let him go? Nobody." Um, the other thing I think the Browns were looking for is that the NFL is like a copycat league, and a lot of the hot teams in the league, like the Rams, um, you know, they have and, and the Eagles, they have offensive head coaches who come up with creative plays and score a lot of points. And that's I think what the the, the direction the Browns wanted to go in was find an offensive coach. Freddie had shown last year that the Browns could score points when he was calling the plays, and John Dorsey just really liked what he was doing. 
thought it would translate to being a head coach, and so that's why they decided to get rid of Greg Williams and bring in Freddie. Um, you know, and it is we're only ten games into the season, so there's there's still some football to be played here. And I think what they'll do is wait till the end of the season and then take inventory of everything. So can they salvage this season? So and if they do or don't, what happens in the off season? Well, that's a big question. I think these last six games are going to tell the tale for what they're going to do after the season. I and mean, a lot of people forget, after all the injuries they've had, the Miles Garrett being suspended, the helmet swinging, injuries, the receivers not being on the same page with Baker Mayfield, they're still two games out of the last wild card playoff spot. Oh, are we still and talking about playoff? It's like they <laughs> are. Maybe the this Browns year. are. And, Although it, without Garrett, that's going to be harder. It to is going to be tough. But they also have the easiest remaining schedule in the NFL. The first half of their schedule was tough. The second half is easy. They have. Are, are you including Pittsburgh as an easy game? Pittsburgh without Ben. I mean, you saw what happened a couple of weeks ago. They beat them handily. That game was pretty much over by halftime. Um, I think there'll be a little bit more of a. It's going to be an going epic battle yeah. uh, on December first on Thanksgiving weekend. So the Browns still think they're in this thing. The division is lost, but they still think if they can win five or six of these last six games, that they're going to be in a position where they're in the mix. So we'll see, and then. The, you know, J- Jimmy and D has them. We'll take inventory and see what they think about how progress is. Right, before you go, put in a plug for the Football Insider. Okay, so if you haven't tried this, you got to give it a look. Go to cleveland.com slash browns, and there's a banner at the top of the page. If you haven't tried, everybody who tries this loves it. Um, so you just try the free trial. There's a 14-day free trial. Every day you'll get one or two texts from Mary Kay Cabot when she's out covering the beat in Berea, when she's at a game, when something's breaking, she'll give you her, her insights on it. And we also do a special exclusive Browns Football Insider newsletter that we work on for a couple hours every day. We compile what's going on with the Browns. We have exclusive content in there, video breakdowns from Ellis Williams, uh, our other Browns reporters, Scott Patsko, Dan Lobby. They do a great job with that, and you only get that if you spend the money to subscribe, but it's worth it. It's like 14 cents a day, $3.99 a month, and you can cancel any time. There's my pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Cheaper than a bottle of water. There you go. Thanks for enlightening us, Dave. Sure, thanks. Anytime. All right, just you and me, Laura. This Brown season might be the most disappointing yet. They seem so good at the end of last year. They have all that talent, and they're a mess. Well, there's always next year, right? <laughs> That's the Cleveland refrain. It has been incredibly disappointing for this town to week after week watch the Browns find a new way to lose, or, you know, with Miles Garrett, worse. You know, I said at the top of the podcast that I wanted to talk about the police headquarters, and, and I did. But clearly the highlight of this episode was talking with Chris about the Tamir anniversary. Do you agree? Definitely. It's like we talked about with Layla last week, that Cleveland is at a turning point. We need to really embrace Tamir's legacy and all that entails. The sad thing is, and we hear from them, that a sizable portion of the Northeast Ohio audience continues to seek to justify the shooting of Tamir. And I just, they can't, I don't get that they, they don't see this. It was 12 years old. There is absolutely no justification for shooting a 12-year-old boy. You know, we again talked about this with with Chris, but I think it goes back to the horror of the act. People cannot accept that a blameless kid died at the hands of police who are supposed to protect us. So their minds make up all sorts of rationale. At least that's the only way I can make any sense of their disbelief. I'm glad we marked it by doing all the content we did. I don't get a sense that our other media in town are, are spending much time on this, partly probably because it is so painful and a little bit radioactive. But but I, as the worst thing I think that's ever happened in this city, um, I believe that it's part of our duty to to give it the analysis and contemplation we have. 
That does it for this episode. And based on your urging, Laura, we will be back next week with another. That means you'll be here, right? Oh, yes. Wouldn't miss a chance to talk turkey with you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. Episodes are published Thursdays. And if you want to stay up on the news in between episodes, consider subscribing to our free newsletter, The Wake Up. It's in your mail when you get up each morning, bringing you up to date on everything important in Northeast Ohio. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And come back next week. We'll publish Wednesday, not Thursday, for the latest discussion and analysis of the news by the strongest reporting team in the region. 